0: You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagans. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagans. And today we're talking about how to invest like a billionaire with alternative investments. Joining me is Ben Frazier, who's Managing Director at Aspen Funds. Ben, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, Andy. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: And we have a lot to talk about today with different asset classes within alternatives. Uh, But since you're managing director at Aspen Funds, could you kick us off with a brief introduction to your company?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those that aren't familiar with Aspen Funds, we're a private equity uh, sponsor. Uh, We operate in multiple asset classes. Uh, We actually started 10 years ago, uh, coming out of the great financial crisis, and finding a very unique opportunity in distressed debt, as there was a lot of it back then, and uh, continue to operate that business today, Um, been operating uh, several funds for about a decade. Um, And then several years ago, we've uh, started expanding uh, the offerings that we're doing for investors into more traditional real estate asset classes, um and even uh, energy, uh, oil and gas deals, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But really, our whole approach is what we call kind of opportunistic or macro-driven alternative investing, right? So you have kind of your big subset of investing in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and then alternatives kind of get this, you know, bucketed into another category. But we take it a step further, and we we really want to invest in what we kind of call the economic tides. And so um, as investors, you know, we're kind of taught that as long as I just invest, you know, dollar cost average and just invest, you know, every month into my same mutual funds, eventually I'll come out with a, say, eight to 10% return stock market and i will be great, right? But the, the the challenge is timing matters, right? And, and the asset classes that you choose to invest in and the economic cycles that you're investing in really matter. And so being able to pick you know, the economic ties and understanding where things are going is, as important as understanding what how good a deal is, how good uh, a sponsor's track record is, right? And so we can talk more about why we think that, but ultimately that's kind of how we first uh, look at all of our deals and determine you know where we want to be positioned, really. And so it's kind of mm-hmm. uh, we we call kind of a more family office approach where we're not just picking one vertical, say multifamily, which has had a great run, and we're still somewhat bullish on certain multifamily deals, but It's it's changed right from two years ago, and you know versus a sponsor that kind of picks one asset class and they just do that you know until they're blue in the face, and you know things can change. We first look at what are the things that we think are going to perform well given the current economic environment, and then position accordingly into those asset classes.
0: Yeah, I love that because I mean, as you point out, well, well, first of all, when you mention the tied in tied tied out, it's like immediately jumping into my mind i'm like well is the tide coming in or is it coming out but it it depends on the (laughs) asset class right and i I think you're right like if if i'm a self-storage sponsor or if i'm a you know whatever a farmland sponsor i i have no choice like i kind of have to be optimistic about that asset class like what am i going to do say like i hate farmland by the way that's all i offer is farmland you know like obviously (laughs) um now that's not to say that you can't have a core conviction in an asset class and focus in on it, but the the opportunistic mindset, that macro driven mindset, that really resonates with me. Because even as an entrepreneur, you know, I was talking with um, a, a, an investment banker last week, and he asked me about timing, and he asked me about some of the businesses that I built and exited. He said, "Andy, if you could build that business again today and start it today, would you do it?" I was like, oh, heck no, like it it, it <laughs> wouldn't work. He was like, why? And right. I was like, well, timing, because we built that 15 years ago and we had all these external factors that are ultimately out of your control, you know, so it, it feels, you know, what you just said about your philosophy, it really resonated with me. It just sounded like honest, like we understand there are all these things outside of our control and a big one is timing, right?
1: And, and timing is so important. I mean, intuitively, as investors, we know that it's important, but for some reason, we think we can't time things, right? Because the the mantra is you can't time the stock market, right? And I think there's this conflation a lot of times of the stock market and the economy, right? A lot of people, uh, you can't, you don't know where the stock market is going to go, and and that's very true to an extent, right? Because the stock market is is really you know being going up and down based on sentiment and you know more short term reactionary things to what's going on. But the economy, like you can look at these, uh, we kind of differentiate between waves and tides, right? Waves are kind of just this kind of constant ebb and flow um, uh, in a given day. And a tide is really one of the longer term things that are happening, you know, underlying and underpinning a lot of this economic activity that you can have a pretty good sense and a pretty high level of confidence is going to go a certain direction, right? So I'll give some examples, like what one trend we're following right now is uh, reshoring, and re-inventory. So we're very bullish on industrial right now for that reason. You know, after COVID, there's been a a massive shift of manufacturing and uh, warehousing of uh, you know big Fortune 500 companies that are shifting it back to the U.S. and nearshoring into Mexico, and to reduce the reliance on the kind of supply chain issues that we all discovered in COVID. Right. Mm-hmm. Another one we're looking at is oil and gas. There's a massive uh, shortage of uh, of production and, and decreasing production. Meanwhile, energy and oil and gas demand is is prode- projected to increase over the next, probably likely several decades um, as we're kind of transitioning to alternative energy. And so there's these kind of big trends that you can see. Maybe the current market pricing doesn't reflect all that, but you can understand, you know, where where the the, the tides are going and position yourself accordingly. And we all, like I was saying, intuitively understand how important that is, right? It's it's a really um, you know, bad time to be investing in single family real estate in, you know, 2007, right at the peak of the market. But in 2010, probably a pretty good time to be in single family real estate. You know, similarly before that, even, you know, going into kind of the whole tech space. So my father is one of the founders of Aspen, was in, in tech. He started a tech company in the late 90s. Really good time to be in tech, right? Anything with a dot com at the end of its name would just Skyrocket, right? From venture capital and, and valuations and everything. 2001, very difficult time to raise money and to be publicly traded as a tech company. Um, and I'd argue, you know, slightly uh, to a certain degree, multifamily, especially kind of value add multifamily, several years ago, we've seen a massive cap rate compression, or a massive increase in values over the past several years, um, bought with bad debt that. You know, there's going to be some level of reckoning in in some of those deals, and so it's timing matters. And you can't always be exact—you know, pegging the bottom and exact pegging the top—but you can have a pretty good sense of of these these cycles. Because in private equity, you know, one of the knocks it gets is illiquid and slower moving, but that also benefits those that are paying attention to where you can be able to kind of time some of these these things.
0: Yeah, you're right. You're never going to time it perfectly, but it reminds me of a, a Warren Buffett quote that I don't remember the bad, the, you know, the exact quote. I'll probably butcher it, but it's something like, "I'll take an average manager in a good business or a business with good underlying economics versus the world's best manager in a business with bad underlying economics." You know, and like the same, yeah, thing, with, same thing with timing. You know, like it's a like it's okay to be lucky, but you you know you kind of you have to realize you can't force all of these external factors. Like they. Are what they are. And some of them, you see them, it's almost like you see them playing out in slow motion. And because they're in slow motion, you know, you almost tend to shut them off or or not account for them or what like that, you know, the near shoring trend that you mentioned. And and, you know, we can kind of see this happening in real time. We know it's not going away, like for a variety of reasons, we know it's not going away, right? And so that's that's an example of something. It's not gonna flip tomorrow. And suddenly reverse tomorrow. Like we can we can price that in for the next probably five or ten years. Um well I love that mindset, and I I want to ask you about your podcast. Because I think this is interesting. You know, your company has a podcast, and we're talking ideas here. So your podcast is titled Invest Like a Billionaire, which I think is an awesome name. I mean, we started the alternative investment podcast. And a short time later, I found your guys' and I saw you were covering a lot of the same stuff. And I was, <laughs> immediately I was like, well, they have a way better name than my show. I was like, that's no contest. But so I've listened to several of your episodes and I don't actually listen to too many podcasts just because of time limitations. So I think that's a pretty strong vote of confidence. Um, I, I love that you talk about ideas and theses and, you know, transparent about it, like the way we're talking now about timing not every asset class is a great asset class all the time the timing matters why did you decide as a sponsor you know as an asset manager as a fund manager why did you decide to launch a podcast cuz i i think a lot of fund managers might be a, afraid to commit to that or afraid to do that or afraid to be that transparent well,
1: I appreciate the uh, the shout out. and uh, definitely depends on the day um on how i how how glad I am we did it or not. because right? it is a lot of work. I mean we are, you know, an active operator. I could turn the camera around here and show you a lot of our team members here that are doing deals and managing deals and finding deals and putting them together. So it's a lot of effort for us. But we made a decision a long time ago, because we kind of saw this early trend that kind of plays into the theme of your show, alternative investing, right? Where, with some of the recent, you know, regulation changes and just the ways that things were moving and allowing more access to these, you know, private equity type deals, we really wanted to commit to going after um, and helping the retail high net worth investors be able to invest in these asset classes that you know, the billionaires, the the family offices, the endowments, the pension funds were already investing in for decades and decades uh, with great success, right? And so, the whole premise of our show is is to educate. Kind of the, the retail investors, they say they have a net worth of, I don't know, two to ten million dollars. So they're they're too small to be like a family office where they could hire, you know, full-time staff to manage their portfolio. Um, but they have some, you know, additional net worth and some uh, investable assets they want to get, you know, better returns, better diversification from just being in stocks and bonds. And so our yeah, our whole goal of our show is to just educate investors around these types of investments, uh, really from an operator's perspective and you know from the things that we're doing and seeing um kind of boots on the ground level um but then also bringing in a lot of the economic you know uh, theses that we have and mm-hmm. you know trying to help set that stage for where do i put my money right and we're not advisors so i can't give you an advice and got to give the caveat right it's uh you know purely informational and educational but that that really is our goal is uh very aligned with you is we we want to help people become better investors because you know, there is a lot of murky waters. There are some bad actors out there. There's a lot of, um, I think, just hesitation for investors to feel confident in making investment decisions in this world, right? Because so much of the time, if you've been doing stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you have a financial advisor, it's, uh, you know, it, you can feel that conflict because, well, I don't know much about this. I don't know what they're doing. And it, you can feel at a loss of understanding and having confidence to be able to make decisions for yourself. But the reality is, it's it's not terribly complicated as you start to peel back the layers, right? There are some of these kind of core concepts you have to understand, like like timing. You have to understand, you know, is it a good time to be in this asset class or not? What are the big tailwinds or headwinds that that asset class is facing? You know, what is you know how do you do due diligence on a good operator? You know, what makes a good operator? How do you make sure they are a good operator? How do you know they're not a Ponzi scheme and you know a big scam? And then you know, really the deal specific stuff. How do you know it's actually a good deal, right? How do you, everyone says they're underwriting conservatively. How do you, how do you really know that, right? And there's some mm-hmm. kind of core things that you can begin to understand and just get a sense of confidence. So that's a very and long that, answer, sorry, but that, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. That last
0: <laughs> one I think is, is super important though. The, this, this is one, the thing that I think is really interesting about your podcast, you know, is this a good deal? How do you do due diligence as an LP as a high net worth individual investor, if I'm not a multifamily sponsor or operator, it's really hard to underwrite a multifamily deal. Right. And I think a lot of times what we tend to revert to, like, I think this is okay. is to do more of the due diligence at the sponsor level. And like, you know, realistically, no, in a perfect world, don't get me wrong in a perfect world, you know, I'm, I'm, underwriting every deal you put before me that Aspen Funds puts before me as an LP I'm firing up a spreadsheet and I'm testing every underwriting assumption and I'm recreating an entire you know but in the real world 99% of LPs aren't doing that but what we can do is look up your track record how long have you been around how many deals of this type have you done before you know what's with your existing fund you know what what's been the result for LPs in your existing or your prior funds that type of due diligence at the sponsor level, I think is really important. And, and back to the podcast, I think the interesting thing, what I was going to ask about, I think it's, it's a really intriguing strategy in the sense that anyone who subscribes to your show, they're listening to you, you know, week in and week out. I think it's, it's over a year old now. I believe it's, you know, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you guys have like 80 or something episodes. Anyone who's listened to uh, consecutive episodes over time, you're building trust with that listener. With that investor, like you've never even met them, right? but they may have heard you speak for hours now about different asset classes. Do you find that that builds trust with prospective Lps like have you actually gotten you know new LPS or investors who found you through the podcast?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's definitely a, a positive you know benefit of it, right? yeah, and I, I think so much of what you're saying is is exactly right where how do I know these are good operators to invest with? Right. And part of it's that 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 trust curve. And how do you kind of get up that trust curve and feel confident? You know, and I think there's no better way. Like if they're if they're listening to me talk about our investment thesis and hearing how we we do things and how we look at things, you're going to get a pretty good sense of do I like these guys or not? Right. And so right. it I think it, it inherently builds trust because we're starting to, you know, we're we're explaining very you know transparently here's what we're doing here's how we're doing heres how we look at things and um and we're also investors ourselves right we we you know part of the reason we do our own approach of this kind of more family office model is we're deploying our own capital into every deal we do and you know the line's interests it um, puts us in that perspective of uh, you know do we want to write this this check that we're asking investors to write too? and so you're exactly right I mean it it helps build trust um and you know, when I think about it, hear, hear the the positive responses, it definitely makes me excited to keep doing it more. But um, as you know, these these uh, podcasts—they're a lot of work.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, they they are a tremendous amount of work. I, it to me, it's just such an interesting and and welcome, I guess, effect of the let's call it the five hundred six C revolution. And really, it's even broader than that. You know, some of the deregulation and removing barriers to access, you know, the intermediaries between the sponsor and the ultimate retail investor. And if the investor wants to do everything through an advisor or through a particular institution, that's great. You know, that's fine, but yep, it, it's also great if they want to have that direct relationship. And so it's, a, it's a very efficient way, you know, to communicate. It's a more enjoyable way to, you know, communicate. I mean, I think a lot of investors more, you know, that self-directed high net worth avatar you know, they enjoy that kind of content and, you know, you know, not just, we like this asset class, but, but why, and let's talk about it. You know, it makes you feel almost like you're part of the tribe and you're part of the the story as an investor.
1: No. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so much of the time, like what we've found, we work with a lot of advisors that send clients and we work with them. So it's, you know, nothing against advisors because I think it's more just a function of the overall financial system as saying where it just, Investors feel at a disadvantage where they don't feel like they actually have the ability to make good decisions, right? They just feel like this is, you know, too complicated for me to understand, and I'm just gonna trust somebody else. But what I think you kind of alluded to is this 506C revolution, the self-directed investor, like we call them the the do-it-yourself investors, right? Or people that want to have more um involvement in their own, you know, managing of their of their assets. And you know, I think about like. How hard people work to build up their nest egg, right? how How hard people work on building their career, on saving that extra couple bucks, you know, and you know trying to maximize their income and minimize their expenses, and they spend their whole life doing that. and then they just pass off what they've worked so hard to just blindly to someone else to manage for them, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with that model, but i I think you should be expending the same amount or more energy focus, Intention with managing and growing your portfolio, your investments, as you do making the money to go invest with it, right? And so I think that's that's a mindset shift that is really changing a lot, and we're seeing a lot more investors realize, hey, I actually can do this. Actually, I like getting involved, I like talking with the sponsors, I like hearing what they're doing, seeing their process, and um, I think people surprise themselves with. It's not actually that complicated once you start doing it you get a couple reps in you do a couple of deals and you know, start mm-hmm. small start slow i always tell people that you know you're probably not gonna do the same deal you did as your first deal you will a year a couple of years down the road right because things change and your perspective change and, and things that you uh, are important to you as an investor so absolutely i i think it's um you know it's, it's important for people to take that ownership take that mindset of i want to really be involved in it because if the more you do that the better results you're going to have, absolutely,
0: yeah, and you know I- I'm right there with you like i I value financial advisors, and to me that's just a personal decision. It's not one size fits all whether a person's a hundred percent self directed or they work with an advisor or even a yep. team of multiple advisors, but at the end of the day, it's your money, nobody's going to care more about your money than you do you're going to care you know it's it's like Like, no one's going to love my kids more than I love my kids, they're my kids, you know. It's (laughs) it's so I'm not saying money is like my kids, but you have the most skin in the game, you have the highest
1: 100%. Yeah,
0: well, the concept of your show, the hook that pulled me in like, I saw the hook, like I said, I was like, that's a stroke of genius. Invest like a billionaire. Well, begs the question, though, how do I invest like a billionaire now? I think, you know, the the a big part of that is invest in alternatives, alternative investments, some of the largest family offices. I know on your show you cover a lot of alternative investments. But, you know, you cover these macro events and macro theses. Is that a big part of investing like a billionaire kind of that accounting for timing and really thinking through the current environment when evaluating asset classes?
1: Yeah, I mean I'm I'm uh, a little bit biased because that's kind of our whole approach, right? Where th- that's kind of how we started, and that's that's really, I mean, the more that we've looked at how the billionaires invest, how the ultra wealthy invest, they're paying attention to these things, right? Because sure, I can stuff money away into a, a low cost ETF and just dollar cost average, and I can get decent results. Like that's 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 something that's proven to work. But eventually, if you're kind of getting into the, you know couple million buck net net worth, you want to get more diversification, right? If you're 100 percent on public equities and, and bonds, you know, correlations over time have, have gone pretty close to one. Like you're if, you know, we just saw last year, I think 2022 is the worst, you know, performance of the 60-40 portfolio of the past hundred years, right? And not to yeah. say that it's not going to work this year or next year, but, you know, diversification, to really get true diversification, you have to go a mix of public and private. And um, and what we're seeing with all these ultra is they they're generally have at least 50% plus into private equity, uh, real estate, uh, venture capital, um, and hedge funds. And so that's really kind of core to how they're doing it. And you know, I would argue you know the higher net worth you have, the more you can allocate over there. And if you're just at, say, a million dollars, you probably don't want to put 50% of that probably into private equity deals, especially as you're starting out. But as you kind of continue to go up that spectrum of of net worth and growth... You know, having higher allocations makes more sense. But again, going back to some of the the thesis behind it, you know, I, I think what we the Warren Buffett quote that you uh, you know said uh, whether it was butchered or not was was right in that, you know, I'd I'd rather be an asset class that has tailwinds supporting it with an average manager, an average sponsor, than an asset class that is not has every headwind imaginable with the best operators because. When you have tailwinds, when you have economic tides behind your back, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? It creates margin. You know, when we're underwriting deals, we're trying to be as conservative as we can. We're adding a lot of contingencies. We're doing all these things. But ultimately, when you're doing an operating deal, things don't always go according to plan. And I would rather be in an asset class that has a lot of tailwinds, that creates a lot of margin, so that it's going to cover over, you know, those, um, the things you can't plan for, Right. And so it it helps uh, create a lot of uh, you know more upside potential, more capital protection, and um, ultimately, I think it's more fun too to, to <laughs> pay attention to these these trends going on, right?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's you know I'd rather be lucky than skilled, I guess. Maybe <laughs> it's another way to put it, <laughs> but it's not luck, I guess. You know what you're talking about. It's not luck at all. It's it's thoughtfulness, and it's it's flexibility. It's not, you know, you don't, let's say you hit age 35 and you're a millionaire and I'm going to invest in in alternatives now because, you know, now I can, well, don't just pick an asset class and say, well, that's my, you know, I'm going to invest in multifamily for the rest of my life because that's the one I like, or, you know, I mean, you could do that if you want, it's your money, but, you know, I would, uh, I would advise folks to seek value, you know, and, and look at different sectors, different asset classes, see where the value is right now and i wanted to ask about some of your specific asset classes that you guys are in one of them you know i've had several guests on lately in private credit or in income and i've made the comment it seems to me that the value in income funds and in private credit private debt it's a very strong value right now right like the the spread that it represents and the the amount of income that you're getting relative to the amount of risk, you know, again, depending on the product, depending on the sponsor, there's a lot of products out there that have very strong underwriting that are asset backed that have very strong yields. And it's, you know, it's not a free lunch, but it's the closest thing maybe, or one of the closest things you're going to find. So why don't we start there? I I know Aspen Funds, you're in um, several different asset classes, but your original fund was an income fund. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like I mentioned, you know, Aspen Funds was started ten years ago, and really coming out of the Great Financial Crisis saw an opportunity in um, distressed debt, and so really was, we're buying these these mortgages from banks, hedge funds, and other um, sources at, at discounts to what they actually owed, and so we started doing that and you know, having some great success, and then eventually created our our performing note fund. So we would. Um, you know, buy these distressed notes that are not not being paid or called non performing notes. And inevitably, you know, a certain percentage of those, they get back on track, they get caught up, they want to, you know, figure out, work at a deal. And because you have so much margin, because you're buying it usually about 20 cents of the dollar, so a pretty big discount. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you can really help people put, get them into really. Uh, so, Ben, know,
0: this, sorry, this, I was yeah. on, I was thinking private yeah, yeah. credit with an income fund. It sounds like this is something far different. This is more. No,
1: Maybe. I'm, 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 getting you there. So, okay. I'm, I'm okay. Fair enough. No,
0: uh, this sounds yeah. exciting. I heard 20 cents on the dollar. I'm like, well, that excites <laughs> me in a different way than private. But okay. Go, go on, go on. Yeah. So
1: we, we, we still do that. Uh, I would yeah. say right now there's not a lot of distress in the system while, you know, there remains to be seen if this year, or next year, fingers we start crossed, see some right? but fingers crossed. Yeah. It, it's always a, yeah. You always <laughs> feel, feel bad to be helpful for that. But, yeah, uh, in our position, it, it's, I don't, good hey, I,
0: I don't even, but. I don't feel bad. I mean, you know, just uh, as an investor, just speaking as an LP, whatever, with a microphone. Yeah. Personally, I just think that uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, a reckoning, a reset, it's due. But, but yeah. go on. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go, go on, Ben. No, no on. I
1: mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting you <laughs> too excited about that. Or not what I'm trying to say, but yeah. Um, ultimately, we started a started seeing these performing notes where these are, you know, really. Uh, you know, good performing mortgages. These are single family properties, predominantly with really good equity positions and really consistent payment streams. And we'll we'll buy those. We, we started that ten years ago, and that fund has grown now to uh, close to nine figures um, in equity, and uh, just very consistent, very boring in a lot of senses. And uh, we you have missed never missed a preferred return payment in 10 years uh, so so monthly. so these yep.
0: these these start out as distressed and then a portion of them end up being higher quality and it's the higher quality subset that go into that fund
1: yeah or- so we have two different funds so we we don't we don't buy any non performing notes in that income fund I um, see. but in our other, other funds we, we we could buy from our other fund and then we have other sources we have about two dozen sources that we buy these Knows from whether we're the ones that are reperforming them or another hedge fund is reperforming them. Um, uh, we also will purchase, you know, bridge debt, originate bridge debt. So there's different kind of categories within that. But um, the the point is, these are all performing mortgages and generally pretty healthy equity positions, and we pay out a nine percent return. So it's nothing crazy, but from an income standpoint and a consistency standpoint, it's it's pretty attractive, right? And so. What I think is interesting right now is I think private credit is should always have a portion of your portfolio because it's you know you're you're lower on the capital stack, meaning you have, you're taking less risk for the returns that you're you're getting, and uh, you know capital loss, capital preservation is generally you know um, a lot more likely there, and especially right now I think where why private credit is getting a lot of attention is. Because people are concerned, right? there's going to potentially be some, as you said, a day of reckoning in, in some of these um the, these deals, and people are concerned about losing losing some capital, and so they want to go further down the capital stack. and that's something I think you know is one of the, a core principle. It's pretty basic to understand, but as you become you know do more of these deals as an LP understanding where are you investing in the capital stack, what does the capital stack look like? And the capital stack, in my opinion, is probably the biggest driver of a deal's performance right if you have bad debt on on a property um it doesn't matter how good the deal is right it's it's a, a bug heading for a windshield basically mm-hmm. so um you know all all that to say yeah we have this this, this debt fund has been going for 10 years it's been a great uh great um, uh, fund and people are starting to get more more attention, right? As people are more concerned about capital preservation uh, instead of uh, just getting the maximum level of returns.
0: Yeah. And you know, one thing I I like about you guys at Aspen and looking into some of the other asset classes that you're involved in, just that flexibility that you're not all equity, you're not all debt. I feel like it almost keeps you more honest or you just, you kind of you know, you don't always have to force the square peg into the round hole or whatever, because a lot of times there'll be an opportunity on, on one part of the capital stack in a deal, but not on the other, you know, or you, you might like one position, not the other. So it just gives you a little bit more freedom to, to, you know, analyze different deals or participate in different deals, you know, in a way you might hate to be an equity here, but with a specific kind of debt asset backed or whatever, like, oh, I actually like that risk reward profile. Um, so that being said, you have the income fund or or two income funds, but you're also, you've expanded into some other asset classes. So tell me about the other asset classes.
1: Yeah, we really have kind of three core offerings. One is our our debt fund product. Um, and then we have our real estate fund, uh, that invests in multiple asset classes and multiple strategies. then we have an energy fund. So that's really focused on oil and gas and, uh, we can get into that if we have time, but on the real estate side, you know, we're seeing unique opportunities and, you know, to kind of balance out this, you know, loss in the capital stack, you know, debt, debt fund, which I think is great. Everyone should have some private credit and debt in their their investment portfolio. We're actually pretty bullish on development deals right now uh, in both industrial and multifamily in the right markets. And that that sounds counterintuitive, right? Oh, we are talking about capital preservation and, you know, being lost in the capital stack and you're talking about development deals. But what's been really interesting over the past kind of really 18 months we talk, alluded to earlier, you know, the value add deals of of yesteryear, they're not working right now, right? and, and a lot of times because these were purchased with bad debt, uh, you know bridge debt with floating rate uh, interest rates uh, with short maturities that are uh, forcing a lot of um, sponsors to have to basically not finish their business plan. and you know, it's a good asset, but they have purchased it at a bad basis with bad uh, capital structure. and they might. Wipe equity out, right? Well, what's really interesting is, especially in multifamily. For example, you know, we um, uh, th- there's a massive shortage of housing, and we've had this issue for a long, long period of time. It's, you know, something that's pretty, pretty clear if you study the, um, the the data at all. And right now, you know, multifamily is going through a little bit of turbulence. But what was really interesting is a lot of these value add deals. The cap rates compressed, meaning that the values uh, went so high to where you're basically paying for the future value of this asset, taking all the risk, achieving the business plan, and you're paying all that now, right? And, and that's what was, you know, head scratcher a little bit the past couple years of running deals. But development, um, you're actually getting a lot of the the, the benefits of a value add strategy. But without the additional risk, so we kind of have this, you know, chart that we show sometimes on the podcast, so basically uh, risk versus return, right? Because as an investor, you have to normalize everything, uh, the returns you're getting according to the risk you're taking, right? So a twenty percent IRR deal doesn't make, mean it's better than a nine percent debt debt fund deal if you normalize by risk, right? You have to you have to normalize what is the risk I'm taking to get that higher return in you know, development right now has some very, very attractive characteristics. Well, because these cap rates have compressed, the value deals aren't as attractive as they were, and um, the older vintages, you know, the Class B and Class C deals are becoming less attractive. Uh, eventually, over time, right, the institutional buyers that you are generally going to pay a premium for these assets, uh, those assets become higher maintenance; they're not as attractive. Um, and right now, ultimately, we're just seeing a lot more. A potential upside in development um, from uh, the kind of yield on cost is, is a key metric relative to what these cap rates are going for. You're just talking about margin again, you have a lot more margins. So you have this kind of underlying trend of, still. So there's a housing shortage um, and there are some additional risks you have in development, but there's not that many additional risks you're taking if you compare it to other types of deals. And you have shorter term hold periods, um, generally a much more attractive product at the, at the end of the day that are going to trade for much lower cap rates. Um, you can get more attractive financing. And again, you're building a lot more conservatism in, especially right now, and you can still get deals to pencil and your ultimate stabilized product is going to be much, much more uh, you know, attractive than, than a value added deal. So that's just one example of where you know, the the trends matter and the strategies need to adjust based to where you're at in the cycle.
0: Yeah. And if, if I'm hearing that correctly, if I can go back to an earlier metaphor you used, maybe that housing shortage is the tide, you know, it's the yep. the, the macro wave, I guess the dislocation, you know, the, the, the value add deals that are in trouble this year, like that might be a wave, but, you know, ultimately you know, you make a lot of your money on the buying side, right? So it just sounds like those deals are just penciling better that that's your, that's your margin of safety, margin of error. You know, if you just get in, at a more attractive price, you know, whereas if you're buying at a four cap, it's, it's hard to see how (laughs) you you almost, either things need to go perfectly or prices need to go even high. I mean, everything needs to go right to make money right there. So that's where I'm kind of at, which is just, if if prices clear a little bit, if cap rates expand a little bit, everybody has a little bit more margin of error. Or ultimately, as an LP, I feel like investors get paid a little bit more reasonably to take on the risk that they're accepting. You know, for putting equity into a deal.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I I think again that whole risk adjusted concept is is so paramount when you're looking at equity deals, right? Because I think right now is actually. If in the right deals, you mean there's going to be some really good shining stars. Even though there's it feels like these kind of headwinds, you know, in in certain areas. Um, But there's going to be good deals to be had that are going to come through because this shortage is not going away. And actually, right now we're seeing a pretty big drop off of new development starts, meaning new new construction, right? Because as the credit cycle tightens, as we're seeing right now with banks. You know they're they're getting a lot more conservative and um, just taking a lot of uh, potential off the table from new development deals. It, developers get a little bit more picky what they're doing, right? But if you can get a deal to pencil, you get a bank to underwrite it and approve it and then move forward at it, on it. And you're in a good market, a stable market with some uh, still some pretty strong tailwinds. You know, just those in and of itself make for a good deal. But then you have the, I mean, it's it's estimated there's five to seven million. Um uh, uh, short, a shortage of five to seven million dollar uh, homes in the US right now, and that's only going to keep growing. And right now you look at the lifestyle uh, you know changes that are the younger generations are per, per you know per, uh, preferring sorry, lost the tr- lost the word yeah. they're preferring to um, you know rent longer, the household formation is slower and uh, taking longer as they're waiting to have kids for later. So these these things they're not going away and in these kind of little ebbs and flows of the broader asset class cycle you can still find unique opportunities. And that's what we're seeing right now
0: there. Uh yeah, I love it. I, I, I love the thesis that you know and you're Ben you're just very um sober. I hope I can use that what you're very sober. You know, and talking about multifamily it's it's actually refreshing to hear a sponsor say we are investing here's how we're investing. We actually see a lot of red flags like that's actually, as an investor, that's actually, you know, almost comforting to hear and, you know, for our audio listeners don't see him on video. He has a crystal ball behind him, Bennett, crystal <laughs> ball. So I want to ask about the macro picture look going forward. And I think that's on everybody's mind right now. Are we in a recession? Are we going to be in a recession? The second half of this year into the next year? you know in in regards to the real estate market and cap rates you know i keep expecting expansion but it's like we're not seeing it we're not seeing it now you know it's like we got a little bit but i'm like really is that it is that all the correction <laughs> that-, that we're going to get
1: yeah it, i mean I, I wish i had a, a really big crystal ball um i think <laughs> you know, this is something we, we pay attention to we actually just did a a series on our podcast it's called investable megatrends we talk about some of these things that are that are happening and ultimately, it's a mixed bag, right? We we see a lot of yellow flags, we see a lot of red flags in the economy, um, and there's there's definitely concern. But then you always got to balance it out, right? Because r- right now, well, I call them the uh, the 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 perma bears. They're they're the permanently bearish in yeah. everything, right? You, you know who I'm talking about? These are the guys that are always talking about the next, you know, doom and gloom thing that's happening. And ultimately. You know, I I think it's always funny to go back and you know use the stock market as, as a proxy for uh, you know, uh how the economy does. Seventy percent of the time the stock market's going up, right? And if I take a step back and I'm gonna be a permanent bear, I'm gonna be wrong most of the time.
0: Right. Yeah, so you're, be- you're eventually... betting against you're betting against America too. It's just like, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to keep America down, our our entrepreneurship and our economy for very long.
1: Hundred percent. So I think they're kind of having their heyday right now, talking about all the doom and gloom and things that are happening right now and things that are about to happen. You know, one I would say don't don't buy it all hook, by and sinker. I think they're 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 pointing out some things that we need to be aware of and be cautious of. But you kind of need to balance it out with the other really positive things right now. The consumer is actually in a really good condition. Um, you know, debt uh, wage growth is very very high, and we're seeing very low un- unemployment right now. Um, because there's just a labor shortage. Uh, we're seeing again wage growth. So people's incomes are rising, which is really good for the economy, really good for spending. We're seeing a massive amount of cash on the sidelines. There's there's five trillion dollars of excess savings on the consumers' balance sheets right now. You know, the the stimulus packages, you know, in, during the COVID days, those are really nice. And people just cashed up, pay down debt. So we're seeing some kind of take ups and you know, uh, you know credit delinquencies and you know, we're seeing some tick up and um you know uh reduction in debt service coverage ratios or debt to income right that but they're not massive to your point it's like okay that's that's we should be aware of that but it's not this massive concern so our, our expectation right now is that we're going to see a reset to your point but i don't think we're going to see a reckoning if you want to use the words you said earlier shoot,
0: i wanted I a thought, reckoning uh, i guess I know. i'll settle for a reset uh, <laughs> i
1: think th- i think a reset's going to happen yeah. um but again, if you look at like I had this conversation earlier today, we're seeing a lot of the, the the interest rate increases putting a lot of pressure on cap rates, right? Because effectively, if you're going and buying something at a five cap and you have a seven and a half percent interest uh, cost to buy that asset, that's called negative leverage, right? That that doesn't sound like a very good uh, thing to do. No. But what we're seeing because there's so much demand from an equity standpoint for these different asset classes, and because inflation is expected to be around with this for a little bit. I'm 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 on the camp that inflation is going to be sticky and going to be stubborn and it's going to be hard to stamp down to that 2% that the Fed keeps saying they want to hit. And if that's the case, that's that's actually a massive tailwind to most commercial real estate um, and even residential real estate.
0: Um so asset you, can buy, you can buy at that you can buy at that lower cap rate, but you're going to have rent growth and NOI growth and and so real quick, you know, 4 years from now when rents are are way higher, because the money printer goes burr, then you know the twenty twenty three cap rate may not matter quite so much. Is that is that kind of what? But that I'm that's
1: exactly right. So so because there's so much equity on the sidelines, institutional equity, I'm talking about, not just kind of the retail money. There's a huge amount of pressure that's keeping cap rates lower, right? So right. most of the most of the expectations, um, if you look at you know kind of any. Uh, Economist or these kind of big CRE, you know, uh, uh, data firms, they're, they're projecting that cap rates might have a little blip up, but they're not going to go massively up for a long period of time, right? I think it's 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 going to stabilize pretty close to where it's at, or if not even go lower. As a lot lot of uh, expectations, because one is very inflation protective. Two, there's a lot of demand still for these assets. Um, I think that the the big bug on the windshield that we're 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 seeing is all the deals that were purchased with uh, short-term debt that had floating rate interest rates. Right. And we kind of keep hearing the stories of these, these deals that these portfolios that are going belly up um, because they had floating rate uh, interest rates and um, they have short-term maturities. So a lot of assets they're purchasing the past two to three years were purchased with bridge debt, which is never meant to be a long-term solution. They generally have three-year maturities, generally are uh, floating rate, uh, Uh, interest rate products. And I think uh, the most recent number I saw was in 2023, there's 25% of the CMBS loans, so the commercial mortgage-backed security uh, portfolios in the U.S. are scheduled to mature this year. So 25%, um, I'm sorry, of of, of all the maturities that are scheduled this year, 25% will not meet the requirements to get refinanced okay um because they haven't grown their net operating income enough they bought it at a bad basis with you know too much leverage and uh you know th- that's, those our, cliff. Deals are that's our cliff
0: but it's the cliff it's the cliff for a reset unfortunately not the cliff uh for, for a racket <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, <laughs> don't yeah, those so
0: institutional <laughs> buyers they ruin everything you know with their bags full of money you know
1: oh i know i know <laughs> i just I wish i was with them sometimes but no, you're yeah. I think that's this probably what we're, we're going to see. I do think the um, interest rates are going to remain higher for a longer period of time, and uh, inflation is going to be around for a little longer. But what what works really well in inflation is real estate. So I think it's it's a good place to be at the right deal, um, in the right with the right debt structure and the right asset class.
0: Words to live by. I love it. And and Ben, before I let you go, and I, I want you to give a plug for your website and everything. But I want to plug our viewers and listeners to Invest Like a Billionaire. It's a great podcast. I really have listened to several episodes, and I don't listen to much investing content. So I I think that's meaningful. Uh if you go to the Apple podcast app or Spotify, if you search Invest Like a Billionaire, it pops right up. I think it also pops up if you just search alternative investments. Like my show pops up and Ben, I think yours does us. We were usually one and two. Sometimes I'm one, you're two, sometimes you're one, (laughs) I'm two. But it's a great show. Um and I did want to make sure to plug that, but then I also want to ask where our audience of high net worth investors and family offices can go to learn more about Aspen Funds and all of your offerings.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, the podcast is uh, com, and then our, our uh, private equity firm is Aspen Funds. It's aspenfunds.us.
0: Lovely, lovely. Thanks again for joining the show today, Ben. Right,
1: thanks so much, Andy. It was really fun. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving
0: us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.